Welcome to How to Sell Drugs, presented by Lucy.co, a podcast about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. We believe that prohibition and abstinence-only policies result in poor outcomes for society. We'll be discussing how drugs are sold and perhaps more importantly, how they should be sold. This is not intended to advocate drug use and meant for educational purposes only. Our primary sponsor for this podcast, as always, is us. If you or someone you know uses nicotine, we encourage you to visit lucy.co to try our range of delicious and satisfying products that we hope you'll find to be much better than cigarettes, vapes, smokeless tobacco, and other traditional tobacco products. Joining me today are uh, two excellent people, my co-founder, Dr. Sammy Hamdouche. Hi, Sammy. Hi, David. And Dr. Michael Weaver, who is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Texas and is the medical director of the Center for Neurobehavioral Research on Addictions. Hi, Dr. Weaver. Okay. Uh, So I am a medical researcher with uh, human subjects, human volunteers that uh, are participating in a variety of studies Um, I'm here at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. Uh, We have what's called the Center for Neurobehavioral Research on Addiction. Uh, And so we run a variety of studies, many of which are funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse uh, and other uh, institutes within the National Institutes of Health. Um, One of the main uh, studies that we're doing now uh, is funded through uh, NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, uh, and is looking at uh, methamphetamine use disorder, uh, specifically medications that may help reduce use. We also have a couple of other studies looking at cocaine use disorder. Uh, some are medications not so much related to reducing use as to reducing damage. Uh, and then we have uh, some other studies that are looking at behavioral uh, interventions to actually reduce uh, use of cocaine. Um, of course, we have a lot of subjects that will be using more than just cocaine, uh, nicotine, alcohol, um, sometimes other drugs as well, including methamphetamine, although uh, we'll focus on a particular drug uh, for a particular study. But of course, uh, we're going to try to help folks um, with a variety of things that you're using uh, within the context of research study. Uh, We even have uh, some pilot studies looking at novel ways to uh, intervene with people who have nicotine use disorder, either uh, through electronic cigarettes or through traditional tobacco cigarettes, uh, looking at uh, some things like virtual reality um, uh, or use of electronic cigarettes for folks who are using tobacco cigarettes. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, so we'd love to get into all of that. I think maybe we should start uh, with with nicotine and then and move on to the other uh, topics. So can you describe in a little bit more detail um, a recent study that you may have been involved in? That had uh, to do so with... Go ahead. Uh, uh, so uh, we have a recent study looking at uh, nicotine use. Uh, one that uh, 
uh, wrapped up not long ago, uh, looked at virtual reality. Uh, we're still analyzing the data, so I don't have results for you, but I can tell you about uh, the conceptualization of the trial. And this was using human volunteers that were smoking at least about a half a pack a day. Uh, most of them were smoking well over that. And uh, we were using a virtual reality headset, one that's commercially available, um, uh, Oculus version, uh, and it uh, goes primarily over the eyes. It's not one of these full-body immersions like you would see in Ready Player One. Uh, this is something that uh, is more straightforward and uh, uh, available to uh, a lot of people, uh, but we are using it in a research context, and we... Um, uh, I've utilized some virtual reality programming that has been adjusted so that we can uh, present people with cues that would trigger urges to smoke. Uh, and we can help to figure out what are uh, the most salient cues for individuals as well as uh, work with them as they would work with a therapist to uh, uh, reduce their cravings from exposure to these kinds of cues, but it's in a safer environment. So this is virtual reality, uh, not at um, a bar or a party, um, but they can reproduce some of these uh, types of scenarios. So being uh, at a party at someone's home or uh, in a bar uh, where people may have uh, triggers from seeing other individuals smoking or uh, seeing a packet of cigarettes on a counter, that sort of thing. And we can uh, walk them through these environments or they can walk themselves through and encounter a variety of triggers, sometimes unexpectedly. We can gauge their reactions uh, and uh, uh, towards the future would be looking at additional ways to help to uh, reduce cravings from some of these cues. And then uh, it's a way to give them exposure in a safer setting uh, than having them you know, out in the real world setting where they may be more vulnerable. That's why they can practice their techniques uh, and get immediate feedback on what it is that they're doing correctly or incorrectly. That's really interesting. And so what techniques are they uh, being trained to, uh, to um, uh, you know, um, get expertise at? Uh, so a lot of this is um, kind of extinction training. So uh, they'll um, have exposures and then, you know, uh, depending on whether they're having cravings or not, they may uh, engage in some mindfulness techniques, uh, something called urge surfing, which is recognizing that you may have a craving, uh, but not letting it affect your behavior or recognizing that you don't have to take action based on that craving. It's just a feeling you can experience and wait for it to go away. Uh, so the, uh, you kind of surf along the edge of the urge until it goes away, uh, as opposed to giving in and taking some action like uh, smoking a cigarette. Uh, so, we also uh, work with folks around um, you know, alternate strategies. Uh, so some of the uh, cognitive behavioral techniques from relapse prevention therapy, such as uh, being able to practice uh, what do I do if I'm in a setting where someone offers me a cigarette? You know, what are some things that I can say um, and have those uh, rehearsed so that they're more prepared for a real-world setting? 
So it sounds like the idea is to to condition them to experience the trigger without uh, actually, you know, smoking um, in order to unlearn the behavior of um, that they that they've kind of um, been conditioned with over the, you know however long um, of smoking in, in reaction to those triggers. Exactly. And so, in order to identify these cues, you you put them through a, a variety of environments, and it seems like the one of the main benefits is that you could identify cues that they weren't aware that they had because of, of course some smokers are highly aware of, of what their cues are, but uh, the idea is to identify some ones that they didn't know they had. Uh, yes. So we can program in common triggers uh, and that way as they walk through or, or are going through an environment, then uh, we're able to, catalog you know, all of the triggers that are already there in the programming and see are they identifying these, uh, are they reacting to them, are they not. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it, like you said, it may bring up some triggers that they didn't think of on their own, either because they're very subtle uh, or because um, you know, they just had not encountered that particular trigger in their usual real-world settings previously. Interesting. I wonder if... Uh I know that you haven't uh, finished analyzing the data, but I wonder if there's a way to pair that with NRT in the future where you give them NRT as soon as they experience the trigger in, in virtual reality. Is that a direction you've considered? Um, not something we've considered specifically, but it is definitely uh, an interesting prospect. And I think there would be a lot of utility in that, um, allowing people to... Um, you know, have those kinds of uh, NRT options available, especially ones that they can use on short notice, um, you know, gum, nasal spray, lozenges, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's much nicer than just shocking them or something like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, plus you have, you know, uh, an additional, um, uh, treatment option in addition to the behavioral. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or you could shock them and then give an NRT. I mean, you could you could do that. Um, well, so okay, that's that's super interesting. I appreciate you explaining that to us. Um, I'd like to um, shift gears for a second to uh, talk about some of these other studies that you mentioned. So, you mentioned that you're running a study for treatment of methamphetamine use disorder and medications to help reduce its use. Can you? Describe that uh, in, in more detail. Can you talk about which medications you're using and, and why you selected them? Sure. Uh, so this is um, a national study that is funded by the National Institutes on Drug Abuse. We're uh, one of multiple sites around the country that are uh, doing this research. It's been uh, going on for around two years now uh, and is getting close to wrapping up. Uh, but... Um, uh, again, uh, we, we don't have uh, data available to analyze. The blind hasn't been broken or anything yet. That's going to be a while. Uh, but the basic premise of the study is using a combination of currently available medications uh, that have been used for uh, other uh, substance use disorders and seeing if this has an impact on folks who are using methamphetamine pretty frequently. Uh, so they have to be using at least uh, 18 out of uh, 
30 days. Um, and uh, most patients that are subjects that we have uh, encountered in this study have been using well above that. Um, but we don't want uh, fairly infrequent users or, or infrequent binge users. We want folks who are using pretty regularly. The medication combination that we're using for this particular study is uh, the bupropion oral tablets. Uh, those are uh, sold under the brand name Wellbutrin or Zyban, which is their brand name for smoking cessation, uh, as well as injectable extended release naltrexone, which is available under the brand name Vivitrol for opioid use disorder and alcohol use disorder treatment. Um, so the, uh, the bupropion is at the high end of dosing, 450 milligrams daily, uh, which is uh, available commercially. Uh, and then the um, extended release naltrexone injections are given every three weeks instead of every four. Uh, so it's a little bit higher frequency for that. So uh, higher uh, towards the higher end dosing of this combination. Uh, but then methamphetamine has uh, for a long time been uh, challenging to find appropriate pharmacotherapy for. Uh, so we're looking at uh, the reduction in use of methamphetamine in folks who've been using very frequently from this combination. And we're uh, doing it for individual participants over around a three-month period for each. So why is methamphetamine so difficult to treat traditionally? Uh, well, methamphetamine is very reinforcing. It's a stimulant like cocaine or in some respects like nicotine. Uh, and it uh, gives a very powerful effect, especially if you're using it in a way that it acts very quickly, such as smoking it or injecting it. Um, but uh, even uh, taking it by sniffing or snorting or the oral route uh, will give a very noticeable onset of effect. It just takes a little bit longer. Uh, but that in itself is very reinforcing. It gives uh, quite a noticeable rush or euphoric effect. Uh, it also enhances concentration and focus. Uh, and while that may be good for um, getting some things done, um, uh, it, if you can uh, accomplish a lot in addition to the euphoria, uh, it can also cause a lot of memories of that euphoria and whatever else you're doing at the same time uh, to be created. And then that creates a lot of triggers later after you're trying not to use. So everything that uh, was going on around you while you were actively using then can become a memory that is a trigger. Uh, it can be things like um, the smell of the perfume or cologne of the person that you were last using with uh, or uh, walking uh, past the street corner where you would uh, typically you know, uh, meet your dealer to uh, obtain your methamphetamine. Uh, or being in uh, a particular room where you would typically use. All of those uh, come back as uh, very focused memories that can trigger some pretty powerful cravings. And that can be very challenging in terms of trying to extinguish those over time. Is that further Especially with higher frequency. Got it. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And so is, is that further complicated by the fact that I, uh, as far as I know, methamphetamine is it has a very long... Um, duration of effect. Uh, yes, that's correct. So um, it's longer even than something like cocaine. Uh, so you know, from a cost-effectiveness standpoint, it may have an advantage. Uh, but 
from the standpoint of being around longer and you know, people may, uh, as some of the uh, initial more potent effects uh, diminish, uh, our people are more functional, but that's just more opportunities to interact with other environments, create more triggers and that sort of thing. Um, so all of those uh, effects that linger uh, can make it more challenging for people when they're trying to stop using altogether. Is there a best-in-class treatment for methamphetamine addiction currently? Uh, so in terms of medications, there's nothing available currently, and lots and lots of things have been looked at over time, different antidepressants, different medications that may increase uh, dopamine levels, and dopamine is one of those neurotransmitters that has been linked with a lot of substance use disorders uh, with stimulants like methamphetamine and cocaine in particular. Um, but uh, nothing has panned out so far. That's why we're exploring things like these combinations that have been proven successful for other substance use disorders. So what we're falling back on are the behavioral treatments uh, still being the uh, gold standard and the mainstay for methamphetamine use disorder. Um, cognitive behavioral treatments uh, and uh, something also called contingency management where you're giving people other rewards, maybe uh, lottery tickets or vouchers for uh, various goods, um, some other kind of reward to take the place of uh, the need for uh, getting uh, the effects of methamphetamine right away. Uh, so they have to utilize the kind of uh, skills that they are learning from their behavioral treatment, uh, the kind of things we talked about with the triggers from the virtual reality, for example, uh, so that they can be successful enough to um, be able to get a, a voucher or a prize or a lottery ticket uh, for maintaining abstinence, as well as for other things like showing up for treatment sessions um, and uh, uh, giving urine samples and whatnot. Have you ever had any patients come back to you and say, hey, doc, um, it really helped with the methamphetamine addiction, but now I'm addicted to the lottery? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, that, that, that may be a potential risk, but uh, uh, fortunately that has not happened too much with folks uh, uh, developing um, uh, gambling problems from this. It, it's seen more as a, a therapeutic measure, uh, plus it, it, it's their reward for uh, accomplishing a particular task or set of tasks. Uh, so uh, we fortunately haven't seen a lot of transition of that sort of thing. When you recruit people for these studies, do you typically, in in your opinion, prefer people to have gone through an inpatient program? Because it sounds like it sounds like this this study has been is largely run outpatient. If I if I understand correctly, is there that's, that's so trying to be uh, as real world as possible? Yes, got it. And and so when you recruit these patients, have they typically completed recently an inpatient program or? you find them through posting ads and they may not have been through an inpatient program, but they recognize that they want help and they come in that way. Well, we want folks who uh, have been actively using very recently. So we, we don't want them to have completed any treatments uh, recently before they enroll in our study. Um, in fact, one of the things we want to see is are we able to reduce their use uh, using this uh, particular intervention? Uh, so if they've had treatment recently, then you know, they wouldn't be an ideal candidate for our study. 
Um, we have uh, folks that have been through uh, some other treatments in the past, and that's one of the reasons why they may be interested in volunteering for a study, uh, something that's uh, new and experimental. But in general, we want to be able to observe the effects on their use uh, as opposed to having someone uh, who's already stopped and uh, just wants to maintain some of those gains. This is more looking at uh, helping them acutely uh, as well as longer term. And are there any other criteria that you look for when recruiting subjects? Uh, I imagine they need to be in the vicinity of the clinic uh, so that they can receive treatment. Do you look for people of certain ages or economic backgrounds or anything like that? Uh any economic background that's uh, immaterial to our study, and we have folks from all different uh, levels of socioeconomic status. Uh, there is some limitation in terms of uh, how far they need to come uh, just to be practical, to have uh, regular outpatient visits to the clinic. Usually it's twice a week, uh, and uh, but we have folks that uh, have been willing to drive a couple hours uh, to be uh, – part of our study. Uh, fortunately, there are study sites around the nation, uh, and so uh, we're one of those uh, at our center here. So uh, folks that look up the study online or, in a, or are in a different uh, area of the country may have access to a study center that's closer to them. Um, yeah, I- ironically, uh, these patients uh, might be best suited to travel very far distances. I'm sorry, say that again? I said, ironically, these patients might be very motivated to travel very fast, distant, far distances because they're very focused, right? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, yes, although, you know, they, they um, uh, we, we want to observe them in kind of a, a environment that they're familiar with. Uh, so uh, if they're traveling too far across country, then, uh, you know, they, they may reduce their use simply because of geography as opposed to our intervention. So that sure. wouldn't be ideal data collection. Um, Do they, but as I said, we have sites around the country for this study that's being funded by the National Institutes of Health. Sure, sure, absolutely. So that that definitely makes it nice that you can uh, gather data from, from different parts of the country. And as far as uh, when you initially meet them, how how often or how frequently do you find that the patients are actually intoxicated when they come in for their initial consultation? Uh, it, it, I'll say it's not infrequent, um, <laughs> but it, it, kind of like uh, going to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, you know, the, the only requirement is a uh, desire to stop using. It doesn't mean you, uh, you know, uh, don't have to, or doesn't mean you're required to stop using before you get there. Um, it will, that, that would kind of defeat the purpose of what we're looking at. Sure. Uh, yeah, we see folks that are intoxicated um, as long as they are uh, you know, able to um, you know, understand what it is that we're trying to accomplish. Uh, and of course, if in our clinical judgment, they're not fit to uh, participate in an informed consent process so that they understand uh, you know, that this is a voluntary study and what's required of them and, and commit to following up with us, uh, then you know, we would have them come back at another time um, a little bit uh, longer after their last use. And do these medications assist with the withdrawal process as well? Uh, we're finding a lot of our subjects just anecdotally uh, are saying that uh, you know, they're 
uh, withdrawal symptoms seem less severe than they remember from previously. So we're hoping that that's a beneficial effect of one or both of the medications. And how much of that is just placebo effect, it's hard to say until we uh, uh, get the data analyzed. But we do have some um, anecdotal reports of that. So that's encouraging. That is, yeah, that is, that's super encouraging. And what about, I imagine you, since you've treated and, and seen so many patients, um, I guess let's talk still uh, for the moment specifically about methamphetamine use. Have you ever seen a patient who has, who has self-reported uh, such a large intake that you uh, can barely imagine that it's possible? Well, it all depends on tolerance um, and just, you know, being a clinician for over 20 years, every time I think I've seen or heard it all, something comes along to surprise me. Uh, but, you know, I've I had folks that have been you know, uh, using large amounts, uh, although uh, you know, the, the, there may be some element of uh, uh, pride, shall we say, uh, in their level of behavior. Um, and then some other folks, um, you know, may not necessarily know exactly what it is or how pure the product is that they are using. Uh, so, you know, you know, if they say, oh, well, you know, I use a gram or a couple of grams every day, you know, it's not like they're weighing it out on a scale. Uh, they're, you know, going by, well, whatever their connection or their dealer told them it was, you know. From their standpoint, um, you know, they're using a small amount of white powder. <laughs> sure. Um, so I guess taking a step back for a minute, um, curious about, you know, when you've, it seems like you've treated a lot of um, people who, who uh, struggle with substance use disorders. Um, are there any kind of qualitative um, characteristics about people who have substance use disorders, um, whether it's methamphetamine or, or alcohol or, or cocaine? that um, that sort of are, are common threads um, uh, that because it's obviously possible to use um, uh, these substances without being um, you know severely addicted um, you know what what do these um, you know patients have in common well there are a variety of things I will say that you know even though you can find commonalities, uh, each person is an individual and they have different sets of circumstances that may have led them to a certain point. Uh, but you're right. There are some folks that can pick up and put down without a lot of difficulty. Uh, one of the things that uh, tends to come up as a common theme is uh, other psychiatric conditions. So someone may be using to self-medicate depression or anxiety, uh, those sorts of uh, uh, issues and uh, they basically uh, found a willing drug dealer before they found a good psychologist or psychiatrist to help them with some of these issues because uh, they find that you know, it's effective for what's ailing them at the time. Of course, it does lead to additional problems. Now, another factor that uh, tends to come up as a theme is uh, you know, what kind of support systems do they have? So in terms of relationships with 
family, with friends, with coworkers. You know, who do they have as other people in their life who can be supportive, whom they can talk to, whom they can share with? Uh, that tends to be a pretty good protective factor or predictive factor for people being more successful in recovery. Uh, whereas if you just don't have anyone to talk to and you feel alone, it's a lot easier to make a decision to use a particular drug. So when you're treating these uh, patients for their addiction, do you also look to treat the underlying psychiatric condition that they may have? Absolutely. It's hard to do this in isolation. You have to look at the big picture. Otherwise, if you're trying to just treat one thing, uh, then it's like trying to squish a water balloon. Everywhere you try to clamp down, uh, something else comes up. Uh, and if you don't try to address you know, multiple issues at the same time, uh, you know, recognizing that you may not be uh, completely successful with everything all at once, but at least making an effort to identify uh, what it is that's contributing to the primary problem, uh, then you know, that's going to be more likely to be successful than if you're taking the approach of addressing one thing at a time or sequentially or in a silo. And when you're looking at these different uh, substances, you know, alcohol, uh, opioids, methamphetamine, um, are there are there sort of differences in the types of um, substances that people um, become addicted to depending on um, sort of their circumstances or their underlying psychiatric conditions? Um, or do you find that, you know, sort of a lot of these are interchangeable and and, you know, there's a lot of overlap um, among, you know, these different, uh, you know, substance uses, uh, you know, with a single patient. That's a good question. And uh, it's true that uh, what people gravitate to uh, may vary depending on what are some other underlying psychiatric issues. So someone who has a lot of depression, uh, someone who, um, you know, uh, doesn't feel like they're particularly powerful or capable, may gravitate to things like stimulants, methamphetamine and cocaine, uh, that will help them to feel more powerful and capable and focused and uh, you know lift their mood in a very obvious way. Uh, some folks who may be more anxious, more of the worrywart type, uh, may gravitate to substances that help them to calm down and chill out and push aside those problems temporarily. Those would be more depressant type medications like alcohol or opioids or uh, some of the prescription sedatives that can be misused. So um, depending on what some of the underlying psychiatric issues are may influence what it is that people will uh, select as their drug of choice. But a lot of drug use is also opportunistic. So people will take advantage of what's readily available. Of course, that's why we have gateway drugs, alcohol, nicotine, and uh, more and more marijuana uh, that people will try first and then may move on to other things that they find are more helpful or more pleasurable for their uh, particular circumstances and mindset. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that you um, brought up um, marijuana because I think you know, given the, um, you know, increasing, uh, prevalence of, of, um, you know, legalization, um, are you seeing more, um, 
people, patients with with issues with you know marijuana abuse, um, because it's classically been considered something that isn't um, as addictive as as some of the other substances that uh, that are readily available. Uh, so as more and more marijuana is available throughout the United States, um, I live in a state where it is still considered illegal, um, but uh, you know, more than half of the states have uh, started some form of decriminalization process either for medical marijuana for specific purposes, which tend to be pretty broad, uh, or uh, allowing use of marijuana recreationally, which is a, a smaller number of states, but uh, continues to grow. And so as we see uh, more people having more access, uh, we're seeing uh, uh, issues that go along with more exposure to folks who, when it was illegal, may just have not indulged in that because of those consequences, but now find themselves in circumstances where well, they can try it. Uh, so more people are using um, and use just epidemiologically, you know, you're going to see more problems as a result of that. But you're also seeing an impact on places where it has not been uh, uh, legalized yet. Uh, so public opinion is shifting and folks will say, well, it's been legalized all sorts of places. Maybe it's not so bad, uh, even if I'm not obtaining it legally uh, in the place where I live. Uh, so uh, people's perception of the harm is reduced because of that. But unfortunately, what we're seeing in a lot of uh, studies that have come out since you've had more and more states move towards legalization uh, is that you know, more and more people are seeking treatment because they've had access to it, uh, they have more use, but then they have more problems and ultimately uh, will need more treatment for that. Uh, so that's a, another problem that's a, a public health issue that uh, is going to need to be addressed uh, regardless of whether people are in states that have passed legislation for legalization uh, and even in states that haven't done that, we're still seeing some of those same issues just because of public opinion across the nation. So it sounds like you're saying you do believe it is more benign than some of these other substances, but it's not totally benign. And so the incidence of uh, things that are unfortunate are, are increasing just by virtue of greater availability. Well, part of its greater availability. Also, um, we have more potent forms of marijuana available. So you can have a more purified uh, tetrahydrocannabinol, the active ingredient in marijuana, and that can be concentrated in hash oil preparations, um, uh, things like dab and shatter and wax, and then things that um, may be uh, turned into uh, edibles. Um, so candy bars that uh, uh, contain uh, higher concentrations of tetrahydrocannabinol uh, or gummy bears or uh, uh, muffins or whatever sort of product you want to infuse uh, this into. And people may not realize that a uh, uh, dose, so to speak, uh, is you know, one portion of a candy bar uh, as opposed to eating the whole candy bar. So we're seeing more intoxications and we're seeing more effects of what higher doses and higher concentrations of tetrahydrocannabinol can do to folks. More psychotic symptoms, um, you know, people seeing and hearing things and becoming paranoid uh, and 
Uh, so emergency departments as well as treatment centers are seeing the effects of this as well. So it's not just that more people are using, it's that more people are using more potent uh, versions of marijuana. Sure. Well, but to, so that, that makes perfect sense. But I, I'm, I'm really interested in learning your personal opinion about sort of the relative effects or, or relative uh, pros and cons of some of these substances and maybe a good thought experiment is would you prefer your child to uh, smoke marijuana versus drink alcohol well i guess it you know depends on context uh so uh, what are the uh, more acute versus what are the more long-term effects so if we take a comparison like alcohol and marijuana uh, with uh, both of them, you have acute effects, and with both of them, you have long-term effects. Uh, the acute effects of both are you know, somewhat limited in terms of time, uh, but uh, usually a bit longer than people will think. In other words, that's a problem with uh, driving while intoxicated. People think they're not impaired while they still have uh, – impairment in their judgment and reflexes when they try to operate a motor vehicle. Um, but the longer-term effects uh, are with something like alcohol, you can have a lot of physical problems. So it can lead to uh, heart disease, elevated cholesterol, elevated blood pressure, um, gout, and, and a variety of physical problems that people can identify uh, or that their uh, primary care physician can identify and address. Uh, with something like marijuana, the longer-term effects uh, tend to be less physical but more psychiatric, so more motivational. Uh, and uh, there's uh, something that uh, uh, used to be known as the chronic cannabis syndrome or the amotivational syndrome where uh, people have some problems with working memory and uh, with uh, acquisition of new skills as a result of regular marijuana use. And so that can affect someone in terms of their uh, study habits or their uh, career trajectory and that sort of thing, uh, which can be more insidious uh, because it is less obvious. Uh, the other effect is that um, uh, we're seeing differential effects based on when people start. So across the board, you know, whatever drug you're using, the earlier you start, the younger you are when you start using it, the more likely you are to have problems. Some of that is just due to the fact that you've got uh, you know, time uh, to accumulate problems uh, because you've started earlier. But also uh, the brain is developing and when you start at a younger age, the brain tends to be more vulnerable. Um, with uh, alcohol, uh, you can see uh, some of the issues with you know, intoxication, but with marijuana, what we're seeing is a, a rather scary association with development of psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. So the earlier you start, the higher your risk of developing something like that from use of marijuana. And that risk is increased if anyone in your family has a psychotic disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, something like that. Uh, so we are recognizing that there are some underlying factors that make some people more vulnerable uh, and 
number one, it's important to pay attention to that. But uh, number two, if people aren't aware of some of those when they start, that can be even more problematic. So I know that's a long-winded answer to your question, uh, but basically the the shortest answer is you know, how um, uh, relatively bad a drug is depends on you know, what consequences you're looking at. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. What consequences you're willing to accept? Well, uh, if if you'll indulge me in, in uh, a little bit more of this exercise, since you're studying both cocaine and methamphetamine, which one would you rather have someone close to you be using? And you already, I think maybe you're leaning towards methamphetamine because you did say earlier it's more economical. <laughs> Uh, well, I guess uh, from a uh, bang for the buck standpoint, uh, you, know, you, you um, have a longer effect from methamphetamine for what you're paying for it. Um, interestingly enough, you know the, the actual effects of both of the drugs uh, are pretty similar from the subjective standpoint of the user, although methamphetamines will last longer. Uh, from a, a chemical standpoint, uh, cocaine uh, is more limited in the way it acts uh, in the synapses of the brain compared to uh, methamphetamine having a variety of effects on any given nerve cell in the brain that cause the effects that it does. Um, so uh, from that standpoint, you know, there, there's the uh, potential for more things to be changed and disrupted with methamphetamine. Um, uh, I think ultimately what it does come down to is the circumstances of the individual. What is it that they have access to? Uh, and uh, that ends up being a, a particular determinant of what's going to be more problematic for them. Uh, even in this day and age, uh, there are different parts of the country that uh, have um, epidemiologically preferred substances. So uh, looking at it broadly, you know, the West Coast uh, and the Southwest, there's a lot more methamphetamine. Uh, the East Coast and the South, uh, there's a lot more cocaine. You know, some of that's just due to distribution pathways and uh, where it comes into the country. Uh, but you know that gets pretty entrenched, uh, and so uh, you know, people tend to use what's available where they are, and you know, it, it, all is not equal in terms of you know do you choose cocaine or do you choose methamphetamine? Uh, it it's more about you know, well what's available on the next street corner. Yeah, speaking of what's available, I, I'm sure you've heard that uh, recently the FDA just approved a, a nasal spray formulation of uh, ketamine for the treatment of, um, I guess, you know, uh, refractory uh, depression. And, um, you know, clearly that's going to make that drug um, more available, um, you know, even if at the beginning it's it seems like it's being very tightly controlled. Um, but it, it kind of brings us back to one of the comments you said um, a little earlier, which is how people use um, these, you know, illicit or controlled substances a lot of times to self-medicate underlying psychiatric conditions. And at least in the case of, you know, ketamine, there seems to be some actual, you know, um, medical value to that. Um, I'm wondering, do you see that to be the case with some of these other substances that you're, um, you know, that you're 
treating uh, patients for? Um, or, you know, in, in those cases, does the, the, the risk just not, um, or the benefit just not outweigh the, the, the risk? Uh, well, people are going to try to self-medicate their underlying psychiatric symptoms with you know, what they have at hand. Uh, and usually if it is something that is not under the supervision of a physician, then it's more dangerous because you don't always know what you're getting. You uh, don't necessarily know what's going to be the best or safest dose uh, for what it is that you're trying to do. Plus, uh, in addition to the self-medication, people are seeking euphoria, uh, so that's going to drive some of their behavior as well. It's not just a uh, situation where they feel bad, uh, they take a dose so that they can you know, feel well enough to function and you know, not seek other sorts of effects. Uh, they're seeking other sorts of effects as well, and uh, because of tolerance, they're going to need higher and higher doses. So if you're getting something that's not under medical supervision, the, the risks are always higher for a variety of reasons. Uh, that being said, you know, we have uh, things that go both ways. So there are prescription medications that are misused, as we've seen with the opioid crisis. Uh, there are also medications that um, you know, have clear risks of abuse, but that can still be used therapeutically. So the uh, esketamine uh, nasal spray that they're using, which is related to ketamine, uh, that has been used for uh, treatment-resistant depression. Um, and you know, there, there are uh, some other medications that uh, can go both ways. Uh, so I like to think of it as everything old is new again. You uh, can repurpose things uh, therapeutically or you can uh, use things in ways that are not necessarily medically good uh, recreationally. Um, and a lot of it does depend on context uh, and access. So when people are seeking to self-medicate their symptoms, if they can go about it uh, in a controlled fashion and seek professional help, that tends to be the safest route. Um, but oftentimes people will stumble on something that helps them feel better before they you know, are even recognizing what the problem is and that they should seek professional help. And so you mentioned opioids as an example there of something that it sounds like could go either way. It, it can clearly be abused as we've been seeing, but it also has legitimate medical purpose. Do you see that uh, with things like in your research on methamphetamine, uh, the prevalence of Adderall, for instance, leading to abuse of, of methamphetamine the way sometimes prescription opioids lead to heroin use, or is that uh, more rare? Well, um, uh, if someone is getting... Um, an amphetamine like Adderall for treatment of attention deficit disorder, and they're treated from you know, a relatively early age under a doctor's supervision, uh, and they come to see it as something that is therapeutic as opposed to recreational, and they see that it does help them with a particular problem, uh, then 
um, you can actually reduce the chances that someone will develop a substance use disorder compared to, say, a child who has untreated attention deficit disorder and then is going and looking for something that will help them to feel better. Uh, but you, you have to you know, have it suitably monitored. Uh, also, if someone is uh, looking to use a therapeutic medication, not necessarily recreationally, but like a smart pill, so to help them cram for a test, uh, as opposed to uh, using it you know, from an early age under a doctor's supervision for you know, a specific set of symptoms that have been uh, preventing them from you know, doing well in school or interacting well with their peers. Uh, and so they see it more as something that uh, uh, is uh, under their direct control but is useful in a variety of settings, so cramming for a test. But that it can also you know, help them to uh, uh, stay up later to party more um, or make them feel good uh, if they uh, – uh, you know, get bad news. And so they will more readily self-medicate for a variety of issues uh, as opposed to from the very start recognizing it as this is a uh, therapeutic modality for a certain set of circumstances and I know that it can help me with that. Got it. So that that makes sense. So if they're monitored properly, it could uh, result in a better outcome for them, which is, which is encouraging. And then... Uh, I know we're we're jumping around here a bit, but there's uh, uh, just so many interesting substances in the news recently that we'd love to to get your opinion on. So, uh, a few more of these would be the uh, use of psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, uh, as a potential treatment for treatment resistant depression. And uh, some folks uh, from an organization I believe called Maps are trying to pioneer MDMA for some psychiatric uses as well. What do you think about these two substances? Uh, so, yeah, the, you know, as I said earlier, everything old is new again. Uh, MDMA was originally used in the 1950s as an aid to psychotherapy, uh, although it um, uh, was recognized for its abuse potential um, uh, later than that and was then more restricted and has been for a number of decades now. But you know, interest has increased, especially at looking at um, MDMA or ecstasy for uh, PTSD. There was a small study that uh, showed that it may have some benefit, although uh, they used a, a pretty big dose of behavioral treatment uh, in addition to the MDMA. So we'll have to wait and see what larger studies show. But you know, the FDA has at least uh, expressed interest in saying that you know that this may be something that uh, could be approved again. Uh, with psilocybin, uh, it. Uh, uh, hasn't necessarily been used uh, therapeutically uh, in a widespread manner previously, uh, but um, they're, they're looking at it now for even things like smoking cessation. There was a small trial uh, looking at that, um, although I thought it was interesting uh, that um, – you know, a lot, a lot of the effects that they described uh, for people in terms of reducing cigarette use uh, were some of the typical recreational hallucinogenic effects. So, uh, again, it remains to be seen if larger studies will bear out the fact that it is useful as well as safe. 
for these other kinds of purposes. Um, you know, Treatment-resistant depression is getting more focus, and I think that's good. Uh, it's also important to explore a variety of mechanisms for treating conditions. Uh, thinking outside the box isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, however, it's important to recognize that these things can and, and have been a double-edged sword that uh, they um, have the potential to cause harm as well as be used therapeutically. And so the circumstances in which they are available uh, need to be well-defined ahead of time so that you don't run into more problems. Absolutely. And and so, you know, some of these substances that, that we were just discussing, uh, such as psilocybin or MDMA, uh, I believe that some of the proponents of these treatments, either historically or now, have advocated for the clinicians or uh, support staff who are helping these people with their treatments have experienced uh, themselves with the drug of interest. How important do you think it is for a clinician or someone in the treatment um, for a patient to have had personal experience with that substance? Well, in some cases, it can be beneficial. So if uh, you have a, a patient that you are uh, you, uh, having used something like MDMA or ecstasy in the context of a uh, psychotherapy session, then you, uh, if you have personal experience with it, you can let them know a little bit more about what to expect, especially if that person hasn't used that medication before, either recreationally or in the sense of the, the therapeutic use. Uh, so you, know, you can let them know what to expect, or you may um, be better able from your own experience to recognize when someone is uh, having a bad trip, so to speak. Uh, However, I don't think that's a requirement. Uh, there are um, many, many examples uh, of uh, you know, having treating professionals not being required to have the uh, disease that they're treating. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily oncologist to have cancer, uh, and there are plenty of gynecologists that are men. <laughs> that, that that makes sense, and um, so there's there's also that stereotype. Uh, at least I think there used to be of anesthesiologists using the, uh, the drugs on themselves uh, that they were, um, you know, of often prescribing. Um, is that still, uh, and I think they've increased like tests in that particular uh, specialty. Have you heard anything about that? Yes. So um, among the medical specialties, anesthesiology does tend to have higher rates of uh, physicians that are impaired by substance use disorders. Uh, it's not necessarily <clears throat> the, the drugs that uh, they are giving to their patients, although you know, there are some folks that um, are talking about that. But um, you know, it's a, a medical profession that, uh, uh, you know, can be uh, very exciting, um, and that tends to uh, attract a certain uh, personality type, uh, and that personality type may also be the same that it is more likely to be attracted to other exciting things like experimenting with drugs. What we tend to see is that most folks uh, that uh, wind up as uh, impaired in the medical profession uh, started experimenting well before uh, they selected their profession. Uh, so 
it, it's not um, uh, always that uh, the the profession will uh, uh, cause a certain condition. Um, it's kind of like you know asking which came first, the chicken or the egg. It has more to do with well what. Uh, kind of folks may gravitate towards a particular profession. And of course, it does not reflect the majority of practitioners uh, who engage in anesthesiology. It's just a small minority that wind up with problems, uh, although that can certainly uh, be dramatic in terms of its effect. Yeah, absolutely. No offense to anesthesiologists. The headline tomorrow will not read, Dr. (laughs) Michael Weaver says all anesthesiologists have a drug issue. Uh, I promise. Uh, Certainly not the case, fortunately, <laughs> especially uh, for anyone undergoing surgery in the near future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we we, we definitely um, love all the anesthesiologists. Um, so anyway, uh, I think we have uh, just about run through uh, the list of questions that we had for you. We really, really appreciate it, and uh, it's it's just been fascinating to to get the perspective of someone who's who's very much on the front lines uh, and. and uh, treating all of these very, very difficult conditions. And uh, we certainly appreciate everything you do and we appreciate your time. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And you had some excellent questions. Thank you. Well, we'll talk soon.